Some of you who haven't joined us in the last couple of weeks as we talked about prayer, the last couple topics, this is our third week. We're going to do a little bit of a review. The first thing that comes to mind when we talk about prayer in general is, oh my God, why do we have to talk about prayer? That's one reaction. The second reaction I got when I walked into the bookstore was, why are there 500 books on prayer? I mean, there's a whole section in the Christian bookstore on prayer, and everybody's weighing into it. In fact, in our illustrious New Song library, I was checking out the other day that even in our library, there's at least 40 books that I could count on prayer. Something tells us that this is a topic that no matter how much we talk about, it keeps coming back. So I'm not going to lay down too big of a challenge for our group to say we're going to do the end-all, be-all of topics so it never gets discussed again. But it really made me start thinking... There's something wrong with a topic you have to address that many times in Christianity over and over. It must mean that it's not sinking in or we're not addressing it the right way or maybe we need to come at it from a different angle. I was talking to my buddy Chris. He's a Christian speaker. He goes around to different camps and he was asking me, what are you guys covering in Exodus right now? And I said, we're covering prayer. And he goes, like that would not be a topic I'd want to cover. And I asked him, I said, why is that hard to cover? And he said, just because it's one of those topics you could talk about forever. Most people just glaze over. They don't want to deal with it. And we never get really through the topic because we keep having to come back to it. In the first week, I challenged you guys to do something. That was take out a card, write down the names of three people that were very close to you or one person that was close to you. Write that person down, think about that person, and put that card away and not talk to that person for a month. Okay, A few of you were kind of like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. You didn't tell us that we couldn't talk to them before we put their name down on the card. Obviously, you guys knew it was a cheap trick on my part just to get you to think for a moment It seems strange that if we claim God is our friend, God is our savior, God is our Lord, God is our king, you can fill in whatever you want, that we don't want to talk to him. And yet, we couldn't go for a week without talking to our best friend. That would feel weird to us. Well, isn't Jesus supposed to be our best friend? Or are we just mouthing those words? Do we really mean it? Because if we meant it, we'd want to talk to that person like every day. That was week one. Trying to understand the mystery. This is the question I was wrestling with. Why is prayer a discipline? You know, if you read the books on Christian disciplines, you know, there's fasting, all these kind of things, and prayer is one of them. Prayer is a discipline, something we should be practicing. So in week one, what we wrestled with, for those of you who weren't here, these simple questions. As humans, we tend to do whatever we want to do, and we avoid those things we don't want to do. So the big question is, why do we avoid prayer? It must be something we don't want to do. I know that doesn't sound like we've made like the most, you know, stunning discovery by saying that. Because otherwise there wouldn't be 500 books in a Christian bookstore about how to pray if every Christian was eager to pray. But I just wanted to just unwrap that for a second and look at it and go, it seems so odd that if we claim Christ to be our friend, our Savior, that we have to force ourselves to talk to him. That we have to read books about how to do it. None of us have to read books about how to eat breakfast. None of us have to read any books about how to talk to our best friend on the phone. I don't see any books about how to go out on a Friday night and have a good time with your friends. Maybe there's a couple for some really weird people. But I mean, for the most of us, there's no book that you pick up where it says, this is how you do it. And yet when it comes to prayer, something that should be as natural as speaking to your friend, we need a book about it. In fact, we need hundreds of books about it. And it still doesn't sink in. Second week, we started to look at prayer from a different perspective. Normally, we think of prayer as something that should make us feel guilty. I don't do it enough. I don't pray enough. People will ask us, like, well, how's your spiritual life doing? I'm not praying enough is like one of the first things. It's like going to the gym. I'm not going to the gym enough. 
We put prayer right next to going to the gym. We feel like it's something you have to do in the Christian faith. Well, this is going to sound a little radical. Maybe I'll edit this out later if I don't like it. (laughs) You don't have to pray. Just, that's it. You don't want to talk to God. He doesn't want to talk to you. Just shut it off. Call it off right now. Let's just just get the guilt out of there. I mean, it might be sin. Warning. (laughs) All right. But... Why do we have to force you to do it? Just don't do it. Just forget it, you know? Just, it's not in your lifestyle. It's not in your means to talk to God. Don't, you know? I mean, you're not doing it anyway, so just just cut it off completely. Make it official. Say, you know what? Not only am I not going to talk to you once in a while, I'm not going to talk to you ever. I think I could do it better that way than forcing myself over and over and over and over to try to make it a discipline. I don't think God wants a forced conversation. You know, God is not the principal or your mom or dad at the parent-teacher conference where they drag you by your ear into the classroom, they bring you in, they sit you down, and they go, now why have you been doing these things? That's not the conversation God is looking to have with you. In fact, what we talked about was the conversation God wants to have with you is exactly the opposite. Look at the verses we chose. First of all, we came with the conclusion that prayer is a birthright. You know what a birthright is? You know, in the Old Testament or even in some parts of the world today, if you're born into a royal family, you get a birthright. If you're the firstborn, you might get all the property. If you're the son or daughter of a king, you might actually have the ability to speak to the king directly. You have certain rights. You're a prince in a way. And that's what God promises us if we believe in him. 1 John 1.12 Yet to all who have received him, that should be us, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We become children of the king of the universe the minute we believe in him. You're instantly elevated to a new status, sons and daughters of the king. So our second week we spent focusing on this adoption policy of you are a son or a daughter of the king. Why would you not want to use that privilege? The God of the entire universe calls you son or daughter and says, tell me anything you want to tell me. Ask me anything you want to ask. I have power to do all things natural and supernatural. Just ask me. Why would that be a hard thing to do? Second point we made, that our adoption allows us to seek the king directly. This is not one of those things where you have to go to church or talk through a priest or anybody else. This is you and God directly Romans 8.15 says, You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. With a minute you become a believer, the spirit of adoption is inside of you, which allows you to cry out, Abba, Father, literally, Daddy, Father. The spirit inside of us when we become believers wants to cry out to God. Third, we made the point that prayer is connected to God's blessings for us. Look at the promises. Ask, it will be given to you. You do not have because you do not ask. God is saying, ask me. Come talk to me. Have the dialogue with me. This shouldn't be hard. This shouldn't be a chore. This should be something you look forward to every day. You know, like when you were a little kid and you ran home and your mom said, like, what did you do today? And you just had this conversation. It was natural. It was like a parent and child having a conversation about something. Easy. Yeah, maybe more present. Maybe people like that are in front of us more. Maybe they're right in front of us. We have a bad habit in this country of relating with each other through proximity. You have a best friend, they move away. They're not your best friend anymore. It's kind of a bad habit. 
You see them every day, they become your best friend. You don't see them every day. That's just a bad habit. It's probably laziness. The reason for this is that the closer we get to what's most important, what brings us spiritual power, the more opposition we're going to get from the devil, from the world, and from our own flesh. There's somebody out there who doesn't want you to have the power that God gives you. There's somebody out there who doesn't want you to be a true son or daughter of the king. There's somebody out there who wants you to feel alone, separated, and guilty. That sin doesn't want us to be excited about a relationship with God. Sin wants us to be sitting here right now thinking, I don't buy any of this. This is baloney. God is not my father. He doesn't want to talk to me. And no matter how much I beg and pray, nothing is going to change. That's the spirit of oppression that most Christians find themselves in. And there's something spiritual about it. Because imagine if you reverse that. Imagine if you felt like prayer was literally a golden scepter that you had in your hand like a prince does. That if you go to your father and say, I ask this to be done and it will be done. Imagine that kind of prayer power in your hands. Imagine what Christianity would be like if we all believed that in our lives. And I shared with you a couple weeks ago that that was really the part of my life where I was the most vibrant about prayer was when I saw it as literally a princehood. Literally the ability to change things natural and supernatural in our world. A privilege, a gift, a, a right, all of those things. But they were positive things, not guilty things like, oh God, I'm so sorry I haven't prayed again. God should say like, why are you sorry for me? You're the one that's missing out. I got plenty of people to talk to. You're the one that's alone feeling guilty and stupid. We got to turn our notion of prayer upside down. We're moving forward. Jesus knew that we would have these difficulties with prayer. So he gave us a model to follow. And I've always been kind of baffled by looking at the Lord's Prayer because I think, did he really intend for us to pray the same prayer every day? Because he said, when you pray, this is how you should pray. And he gave us the Lord's Prayer. And for a long time, I would not do a talk on the Lord's Prayer because I just thought, I'm not really sure how I feel about it. It seems a little weird that what we're supposed to do is just pray the same prayer over and over. But what Jesus is really giving us is a model for prayer, for how prayer should work in our lives. We're going to walk through the Lord's Prayer in the next couple of weeks, dissecting pieces of it. Because there's a lot of wisdom into this prayer. I mean, you can imagine, of course there's a lot of wisdom. God created it. And he gave it to us for a reason. So tonight we're going to start going through it. How many people know the Lord's Prayer by heart like the Pledge of Allegiance? You just say it like, but if I ask you to say the fourth line, you'd have to go like... Here it is, the Lord's Prayer. Tonight we're covering the first part of it. We're going to start with our Father in Heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And that's kind of what we're going to focus on tonight, because believe it or not, that's actually more than I wanted. It, I wanted to break it down into multiple weeks, but it would just take us too long to walk through. You could spend probably two weeks on each line. We're not going to do that. Our Father in Heaven. We just finished talking about a number of verses that make direct reference, as we talked about in our second week, to our position as a son or daughter of the King. God is reaffirming those when he says, this is how you pray. Pray our Father. We focused in week two on our role, our privileges, our rights as a son or daughter of the king. Tonight, we're going to focus on God's role as a father. What does it mean to be a father? Not just any father, but father in heaven. 
Now, I think it's very clear. He says, our Father who is in heaven, because one of the first things that God does is establish himself as a heavenly Father. I'm not just any Father. I'm the heavenly Father. I'm also the Father of all of these things. The reason that's kind of important is, i got to be honest with you, some of us don't have the best relationship with a father that we're going to look at and understand when he uses the metaphor. Fathers on earth do a lot of things, some good, some bad, some crazy, some wacky, some heroic. They're all over the map. Sometimes the same father is all over the map. Our own relationships with fathers can get in the way of how we view our heavenly father. And that's why the first thing we have to make clear is we're not talking about an earthly father. We're talking about a perfect heavenly father the way it should have been. And that's something we have to get over sometime. If you are one of those people who struggles with an image of a father, that's fine. But think of God in a different way. Just as everything in this world has fallen, so are fathers, but not this father. He's our heavenly father, and that's an important distinction that we have to keep in mind. Here's his claim. Father is used 189 times in the Gospels to describe God, more than any other name that that is given to God in the Gospels of the New Testament. Now, there's a lot of names throughout the Bible given to God, but the one that's most prevalent in the New Testament is Father. Here are some of his other characteristics as Father. Father of glory. You guys know this song, Father of Lights? We sing it sometimes. That's almost a better description of Father of glory. Father of lights. God's glory is so intense that we remember in the book of Exodus that Moses asked him, can I see your glory? And God said to Moses, no. Man cannot see me and live. I am so glorious. I am so stunning. I am so brilliant. I am so perfect. I am so holy. You cannot look at me without dying. Even Moses who had served him all those years, that's the intensity of the glory of God. He's the father of mercies. Not just one mercy, but many mercies. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. It's a great worship song, God of all comfort. It just talks about He is the source of all mercies for us. He's the Father of love. If you want to make sure that you understand that God, to the depths that He loves people, God's the only God that I know in any book, in any place, in any writing that says, love your enemies. I say to you, love your enemies. Jesus says in Matthew 5.44, And pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Notice that a prerequisite to being a son of the Father in heaven is to love your enemies. For the Father causes his Son, and I don't mean the his first begotten Son, I mean the Son in the sky. The Father causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's the Father of all love. He's the Father of all rewards. Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, go into your inner room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. He's the Father who keeps and protects. John ten twenty eight to 29 I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hands. Just one of the passages of his protection the god who is trustworthy luke 12 29 to 32 do not set your heart on what you will eat or what you will drink do not worry about it for the pagan world runs after such things and your father knows that you need them 
But seek the kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And then finally, there is God as the Father who disciplines. We're really good about dealing with the God who gives us all these great things. Some of us might believe it. Some of us don't believe it. Some of us mouth that we believe it without really trusting in our hearts that God really is all of those things. But the one that Christians don't like at all is the God who disciplines. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6 says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Listen to that again. You have forgotten the exhortation that is addressed to you as sons. You want to be a son or daughter of the king? Then you get this part too. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. If the Lord didn't love you as a son or daughter, he wouldn't take the time to discipline you. An example that I hear often is a parent saying that the neighbor's kids were overdoing whatever, and they said, hey, they're not my kids, I don't care, let them do whatever they want, without actually taking the time to discipline them. God treats himself as your father, and one of the consequences of sin that we've talked about, one of them, albeit you're always forgiven, one of the consequences is God may choose for your own good to discipline you. Ryan? You think, because I feel like a lot of times just in my life, my own sin gets in the way of actually me talking to God, because I have like this thing towards, like I know he loves me, but like you said before, like he, he loves, he disciplines so it's kind of like one of those things to where, okay, does he look at me and, and not, like, I know the spirit, you're supposed to be convicted by the spirit, right? You're not supposed to grieve the spirit. Um, but then again, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, is our sins, they don't really get in the way of prayer, right? Because of that? Or... Let me put it this way. They shouldn't get in the way of prayer, but they do. One of the, there's, there's multiple consequences of sin. Unforgiven sin leads to death and eternal separation from God. That's a serious consequence. All right, but even as a Christian, when you say all my sins are forgiven because I've accepted Christ, that's easy enough. You could say sin has no spiritual consequence to me in terms of salvation because now my sins are counted against me no more and I have free entry into heaven. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have other consequences. We've dealt with some of them. For example, it hurts other people. You can't just say, Oh, God, forgive me. What about that other person? I mean, you've hurt somebody. Sin causes guilt and separation from God. It shouldn't, but it does in us as humans. I mean, even in the Garden of Eden, when they finally sinned, they went and hid. I mean, what, what do they think that they, God doesn't know what's going on? But they still, their shame and their guilt caused them to go run and hide somewhere where God was saying, where are you? Like, he knew where they were. But that kind of sin and separation is really what causes the divide, even in a forgiven situation where you say, I'm a Christian, I'm forgiven, all my sins are counted no more. And yet when we had our series on sex, one of the most difficult things about the sin of sex, for example, is that it always causes us to run and hide ashamed. So even though God is not saying, you're out of here, we ourselves give ourselves like a timeout somewhere where we're like, ah, feeling guilty, ashamed, messed up, on the sidelines. And it takes us a long time to finally get the courage to come back. So, yes, you're correct that, I mean, God may discipline you while he forgives you at the same time. We've seen earthly parents do that. God does that in the same way. But that should never prevent us from, from feeling like we should come to him. And yet I know that in our hearts, 
a lot of us will say, oh, it's been so long since I've prayed, I don't even know that I'm worthy to really pray. And we know that's baloney. If you went to any pastor in the whole world and say, you know, I haven't prayed in three years, should I not pray because I haven't prayed? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Start praying now. When, when a parent disciplines a child, like when I was young and I shoplifted, you know, my dad could have done a lot of things, but the way he disciplined me taught me never to shoplift again. You know, because he showed me the consequences and I had to go through them. You know, like I had to go back to the storekeeper and tell him I had stolen it. You know, then I had to go, then my dad put me on trial <laughs> as a five-year-old. You know, and then he told me, he told me that I was convicted and I was going to jail. <laughs> you know, and then I had to say goodbye to all my sisters, you know. I mean, it was just like a, you know, like a heart-wrenching experience, like a five-year-old. We're dividing up our record collection because that's all we had that, like, you know, like we're like, you get this one, I get this one, you get this one. Like you could listen to records in jail. But anyway, you know, I'm five. Again, it, like I'm forgiven, the storekeeper forgave me, and in a spiritual sense, maybe all those consequences are gone. But there's still a father who's trying to discipline his child saying, I want you to learn from this, not to do this again. It's a difficult subject because we want God to always be the provider, and he is. Just like our fathers on earth are supposed to be the providers. And remember the verse that we come back to over and over and over where it says, If you who are evil give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask? So we know that God is an amazing provider. But if he loves you, you should expect to find discipline at times in your life when you totally violate his rules. And they're for your own good, not just so he can sit there and go, ha, ah. ha, because if he doesn't love you, he just would do nothing. Right? He's trying to shape you and mold you. That's our Father who is in heaven. Our Father in heaven, the second line is, hallowed be your name. As we begin the Lord's Prayer, we need to understand one thing that Jesus starts the prayer with after he addresses it to our Father. He says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed, you guys know, means to make holy. Holy be your name. Do we make his name holy? I think we really need to think about this one for a second. Remember, Moses asked him, can I just see you? I've served you so many years. Can I just see your face? And God's like, I am so holy, you can't look at me. Do we treat God that way when we worship him? Or do we spend time in his presence in prayer or even in worship here tonight? Do we treat him with the kind of holiness that he demands? Think about Isaiah chapter 6. You guys know that we use this as the basis of our CD on why a loving God would send someone to hell. But in Isaiah chapter 6, here's the image. Isaiah has a vision of the Lord sitting on his throne. And what's going on around the Lord? He has angels flying around him who do nothing. Their job is to scream out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All day long. All night long. That's their job. Their job is to say, you are holy. You're so holy, we have to keep repeating it. Remember, I told you that the Hebrew language doesn't have punctuation. So when you repeat a word three times, you're like exclamation point like three times. It's a strong emphasis. There's no word repeated three times that describes God in the entire Old Testament except this one, holy, holy, holy. And that's what the angels keep repeating over and over and over and over again in his throne room. Imagine that. God created creatures that do nothing but praise Him all day long. Jesus is telling us when you come into the presence of your Father, do so in a state of holiness. He created you, just like He created the angels, 
We are the creatures that should be praising him more than them. Because he saved us. He created the whole plan of salvation for us. We should know his holiness. So the first priority in prayer, Jesus tells us, is to glorify the name of the Lord and to exalt his holiness. 1 Corinthians 10.31. This is the one that a lot of you are always trying to cite, but you don't know where it is, so you might want to write this one down. This is the one where you guys are always saying, but isn't everything we do supposed to be a prayer or a glorification? Here it is, just in case you guys are going to cite this in your brief someday. So whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Whatever you should be doing in your life, you should be glorifying God. I know whether you're playing tennis or hanging out or going to school, I know the argument. Everything we do is a prayer. Everything we do is to glorify God. But does it really glorify God, everything that we're doing? Does it really glorify Him? Think of not glory like, just praise, glory like Father of lights. Does it really pierce the darkness? Are actions pure like light that shed light on the Father Himself? Do we bless Him back? This guy's got it made. He's got legions of angels that do nothing but fly around his throne room and say, holy, holy, holy. He wants the same from his own creation. Remember, God's holiness is so intense that the angels have six wings. Only two of them are used to fly. The other four are used to cover their bodies, two of them, and two of them to cover their face because even the angels can't look at him. That's a pretty intense God. That's the God who does the supernatural. That's the God we rarely enter into his presence. Jesus knew this Lord. He knew him both as Father, and he knew him both as part of the Trinity. And he's trying to explain that to him. This is not a God that you want to say, like, I didn't really pray to this. This is a God who demands that kind of holiness and prayer, but at the same time is inviting you to participate in the power that he has. So that's the first priority. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Some of you go, I don't know what I'm supposed to pray about. Just stop right there. If you have nothing else to pray about, or you don't know what to pray about, just stop right there. And you'd be doing pretty good. You'd at least be joining all the angels in heaven, at least saying, Lord, you're holy. Lord, you're good. Lord, you're amazing. Just, you know, whatever you want to say. And it would all be true. Second priority. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. We're going to stop here tonight, but let me explain to you what we're talking about. Thy kingdom come. We say those words like the Pledge of Allegiance. We don't even know what they mean. What are we saying when we say, your kingdom come? What are we asking for? Yeah. When we ask for God's kingdom to be part of our lives, we ask to, to know God. We ask that, that God will save us. I mean, there's so many dimensions. That's that's you're right, it is a big topic. I'm gonna to try to simplify it into three parts. Because a lot of people get this this is a concept in Christianity. If you polled an if you went on a Sunday morning to an average church and you polled everybody in the church, I bet you ninety five percent of the people would get this one wrong. Because this is one of the hardest things when they go, When Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, what was he talking about? And everybody will give you a different answer. There's a part that's here, and there's a part to come. There are three elements theologically to the kingdom of God. God's kingdom ruling the universe has always been here. That's part of his kingdom that is already here, will already been here from the beginning of time. God as a king has always ruled. But there are two elements of his kingdom that are part here and one yet to come. 
So the first one is called the kingdom of power. That's just God's absolute rule of the whole universe. There's also the kingdom of grace, which is what Jesus ushered in when he says, Today the kingdom is upon you. Meaning that starting today, people can now enter the kingdom of God. Today salvation is here. You guys now have the opportunity to receive grace, to have your sins forgiven, and to join the kingdom of God forever. But there's a part of the kingdom that's yet to come, which we know because we studied it for six weeks. Heaven. It's not here yet. That's in the future. It's coming. And that's the part of the kingdom of glory when finally God and his entire creation, those who found grace, are reunited in glory. Okay? So three simple parts. God has always ruled. That's his kingdom. There's the kingdom of grace, which is everybody who believes in Christ is now part of the family. And this is an ongoing sale right now, okay? It doesn't expire yet. We have time. God says, I am patient so that none will perish. And that's why we are, for 2,000 years, existing under this kingdom of grace because we're letting more and more people into the kingdom of heaven. And God is withholding his final judgment, waiting. But he does promise very clearly that at some point that's going to close and then we have the kingdom of glory for those who believe in him. So when Jesus says, pray for thy kingdom to come, there are two things we're praying for. One, that the kingdom of grace would continue to come into this world and save more people. And two, we are really saying, Lord, I'm looking forward to heaven when you finally get rid of this messed up earth. And I'm looking for that day. When is it coming? Look at Acts 1.11. This Jesus, who has been taken up into heaven, will come in just the way as you've watched him go into heaven. There's a promise. Jesus is coming back. When you pray, thy kingdom come, you believe it in your heart. You believe that Jesus is coming back, just like he said. 2 Peter 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come saying, where is the promise of his coming? People are going to be asking, like, where's this Jesus? Where's the second coming? This is all a farce. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we're confessing that we believe that there is a kingdom coming. This is the ending that we know. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the ending we're looking for. That's what we're asking for when we say, thy kingdom come. When is the day coming when everybody on earth will know that Jesus is Lord? Not because they'll debate it, but because they'll look up in the sky and Jesus will come back with the angels and they'll be like, zoinks, I was either right to believe in him or I was wrong to question him. But by then, it'll be a little bit too late. So all you can say is, zoinks. (laughs) That's all that's left. And then in the twinkling of an eye, it says, we'll be caught up and it won't matter anymore. But right now... With the kingdom yet to come, it does matter. And that's why we spend so much time talking about talking to our friends who don't know about Christ. Because now's the time where the doors are still open. Jesus said it's like in the days of Noah. Nobody believed Noah. They all laughed at him. They said, a flood's not coming. And Noah just kept building the boat. When the flood waters rose, they all banged on the door and said, let us in. And Noah said, it's too late. And that's what Jesus said. It'll be like those days. We'll be telling everybody and most of the world will laugh at us and think we're fools until the floods come and then it's too late. We're also longing for the kingdom to come. Romans 10, 11, Brethren, my heart's desire, the desire of my heart and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. 
You know, when you're on your knees and you're thinking the first thing I should be doing is glorifying God, hallowed be your name. The second priority in our prayer, if you don't know what to pray for, you're one of those people like, should I be praying for me or what should I be praying for? Second priority in prayer should be to pray for the salvation of those who don't know the Lord. And just at the same time, yearning for the redemption of our own bodies in the resurrection. You're yearning for two things simultaneously. For the kingdom that's partially here, the kingdom of grace, that more people would enter into it, and also for the kingdom of glory so that we could finally just get to heaven and get rid of this world. Now, when we had our series on heaven, I know we talked about how much of us love this world so much. We're not looking forward to heaven, and we went through that. But what Jesus is commanding us or telling us to pray is yearn for the coming kingdom. Don't live for this world. Romans 8.23, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. We are groaning for the redemption. Here's what we're groaning for. Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. There's that adoption language again. The redemption of our body. Literally translated, what it's saying is, I want the day when I can have my resurrected body. I want to go to heaven and get rid of this messed up sinful life on earth. So we're yearning to save as many people and we're yearning to get the heck out of here. That's what you're saying when you're saying, thy kingdom come. Now there's a lot of other things we're going to be going through in the Lord's Prayer to pray about, but let's spend just a moment on those two. If you're like me who can pray about three minutes before you fall asleep, or if you're sitting in a prayer time, you know, and somebody says, let's pray silently, and they give you about 30 seconds to get your own words in before they muffle it up with theirs. If you don't know what to pray for, those are two amazingly worthy things to pray for in that order that Jesus says, pray like this. Glorify your Father's name and call him holy for who he is. Pretend you're one of those angels that's just like flying around, you know, with the six wings. All you do is say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Maybe then you just say, thy kingdom come. You just think about that for a moment. Thy kingdom come. That's all I want. Maybe it's a struggle in our souls because that's not all we want, you know. We want to live on earth. We want to have all the good things. We want to be happy. We want all this stuff. And at the same time, we want to go to heaven later, later. No, no. That's what Jesus wanted you to pray for. To constantly pray for the salvation of other people and to constantly pray for your own redemption to go be with him forever. Next week, we're going to cover another topic that baffles most Christians that they walk around aimlessly in life like zombies in a zombie movie. Like, what's the Lord's will for my life? I don't know. What's the Lord's will for my life? I don't know. Where is the Lord? I don't know. Okay, next week, we get to the part of the prayer where he says... Pray like this, thy will be done. And we're going to have to talk about that. We're going to have to spend a whole week on those words because most of us struggle with the question of how do I know God's will for my life? And next week, we're going to dive into it. So if we say, Lord, you want me to pray thy will be done? I'll make you a deal. I'll pray that way if you tell me what your will is. Deal? I want it written. I don't want some vague, like, you know, glorify me thing. I want it written. I want a roadmap. I want steps with subparts and, like, milestones on the way. That's next week. Every one of you will walk out of here with an action plan and a business plan of what God wants you to do.
That's our topic. That's where we're going. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, I ask forgiveness for the way that sometimes we treat worship or prayer or just being in your presence. Sometimes we forget how holy you are and just the holiness that your perfection commands. And if not just your perfection, the fact that you saved our lives, Lord, that you bought each of our lives, that you saved us from the fires of hell, Lord, with your sacrifice, something you did not need to do. For that, I praise you, Lord, and I pray also for your kingdom to come tonight. Not too soon, Lord, be patient with us. We are slow to do our job of telling each other about your great salvation. And Lord, sometimes we don't treat it urgently enough. We think, oh, it's so far away, we can take our time. And yet, Lord, I sometimes wonder if there was a time clock ticking somewhere, if we wouldn't take the business of spreading your word more seriously, if we knew how close we were time running out. Lord, even if it was 100 years, it might give us a deadline to work against sometimes, Lord. But you chose in your infinite wisdom to keep that time to yourself and commanded us instead to just spread your word. Tonight we pray, Lord, for your kingdom to come. I know in confidence, Lord, we will be together in heaven sometime. But give us time, Lord, to tell others about you so that we may all be there together. Lord, tonight we bring specific prayer requests before you. I pray for Alicia's mom for healing. Lord, thank you for gifted people who are able to heal and to give medication and do those kinds of things. But Lord, the pain still stays and I just pray that you would just touch her tonight and help her to heal faster. Lord, for more serious things, I want to pray for the Willison family as they struggle through times that are difficult. I pray, Lord, that, that you would see them through even dark hours. And the same with David's friend, where there's death in the family all around, it seems. Lord, we know with certainty that we are going to die. And yet our lives just cry out to want to live forever. And Lord, maybe that's the best indication that we were meant to live forever. That even when we know that death is real, that it's all around us, it still grieves us. It still hurts. We want to live forever. And maybe that's you inside of us telling us that we will someday live forever. Lord, I want to lift up Angela, who's chosen to give her schooling years in further pursuit of study of ministry and theology. And for all of us who are going back to either school or finals in one way or another, Lord, I know that my friends who've walked through seminary have had a difficult time, and a lot of times along the way even questioned the road that they were on. Lord, it's a difficult endeavor, but it's worthy of you. It should be worthy of you, Lord the time and the effort and the commitment that it takes to study these things and to understand them more fully. Lord, you are an infinite God. We would not expect that any study of you be easy. So I ask, Lord, that you bless her commitment and that you help her in the more difficult times, whether that just be in giving her health, rest, increased capacity, uh, and just the time and the patience to sit through and learn what seems to be an immense amount of material. Lord, for all the prayers that are unspoken tonight, you know them. The God who is in secret hears all things, and you will reward all things. Lord, we lift all these things up to you tonight. And most importantly tonight, Lord, I lift up to you and thank you for just the time that people give on Sunday nights to study you at this depth. We could so easily lay it aside and and make it quick, make it fun, make it even maybe more funny. But Lord, 
I just thank you for those who are here, and I pray you bring back safely those who are still on vacation and coming back and will be with us next week. Pray these things in your holy name. Amen.